Thank you once again to everyone who's joined us. An especially big thank you to our panelists. We will introduce them to all of you in a little bit more detail very shortly. Um, just to give everyone a quick sense of how we're going to run the session, um, we're going to have a quick introduction, of course, and then um, I'm going to ask each of our panelists to give us a bit of an introduction on um, what has been happening with Adani interests and projects in um, their respective countries of interest. Um, and, um, you know, once we are done covering that, um, I think I'm, uh, I have a couple of uh, questions that I hope everyone will find interesting and stimulating, um, and we'll put those to the panel and pick their brains. Um, and after that, of course, we are going to open up to questions from um, from the audience. Um, we're also live tweeting proceedings, so you can put your questions um, here in the chat. Raisa will be monitoring that. Um, if you feel like putting them up on Twitter, we have somebody monitoring that as well, and they will be funneling questions in. Um, so Raisa will be keeping an eye on those questions and then um, picking which ones to ask later on. Um, so thank you all. And um, just to give you all a sense, I think we all know why we're here. Um, but just a reminder that, of course, Adani has been making news because of the Hindenburg um, report and the information revealed uh, there. Um, Hindenburg calls it the biggest con in, um, in corporate history. Adani of, um, denies the claims of Hindenburg. Um, Adani has also said that um, this is basically an, a jealous attack on India's success story. Um, and while, of course, the um, that has brought a lot of scrutiny onto the, uh, the Adani group, a lot of that scrutiny has been um, specifically on India, understandably so, since that is where Adani has the bulk of um, the group's interests, and also that is home base for the corporation. Um, but at the same time, Adani has been pushing to expand um, its regional footprint, not to speak of its global footprint. Um, and there are multiple South Asian countries where the Adani group has been at work. Um, and in each of those um, countries um, with journalistic scrutiny in the best journalistic traditions, there have been plenty of questions being raised, some of them specific to individual places, um, a fair number of them, I think, in common. I think there are questions of how particular projects and contracts were awarded. Um, there are contracts of due diligence on the part of the Adani group. There are contracts, uh, oh, sorry, there are questions of, um, of political influence, including on more than one occasion um, claims that there was direct pressure on uh, um, neighboring governments from the Indian government um, to award certain contracts um, to the Adani group. Um, so in a way, um, I think the Adani group is uh, maybe um, a good way for us to look at um, all of these questions combined, the way that um, corporations and corporate power is functioning in our region and in our countries, the way that our governments are um, reacting to and working with um, the, that um, corporate power. Um, and also questions, of course, of what this means from a more democratic standpoint. 
Um, are the deals that are being struck really being struck in ways that are democratically transparent and democratically beneficial to all of the people of South Asia? Um, so that's why we are here. We're trying to open the lens to look at Adani in India, of course, where there is lots of scrutiny due, um, but also elsewhere across South Asia, primarily in Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, India, um, and Myanmar. Though I will say here very briefly that Adani um, does also have a wider footprint. They've expressed interest in a hydropower um, project in Nepal. Um, so far, no movement beyond that. Um, and in Bhutan, there is a, a power transmission project that Adani is also um, involved in. So it is, of course, a larger footprint. But I think the places where they where Adani has the most um, interest regionally and also has done the most work already are the four countries that we are looking at today. Um, with that, I'll hand it over to uh, my colleague Raisa with a big thank you to Raisa and also a silent um, hand of thanks for the team at Himal South Asian who worked hard to put all of this together and organize everything. Um, so thank you guys. Thank you to everyone behind the scenes. Raisa, if you could please introduce all of the panelists. Thanks, Roman. So yes, without further ado, I'll just introduce um, all the panelists um, today. And we're thankful to all of you for joining us uh, and sharing your expertise with us. Um, so joining us from uh, Bangladesh, we have Zia Hassan, who is a development economist and the author of Development Mirage, the untold story of Bangladesh's economic development. We also have Rawa Naraf, who is the principal lawyer and executive director at the Australian Center for International Justice. And uh, from India, we have Ravi Nair, who is a freelance investigative journalist based in India with bylines in NewsClick, The Wire, Mani Life, Frontline, and Jantaka Reporter. And from Sri Lanka, we have Rathindra Kuruvita, who is a journalist and researcher based in Colombo with a focus on security and international relations. And we, of course, have um, Roman, our editor, who will be moderating the conversation today. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us. And I'll hand over to Roman now to take on moderating. Super. Thank you so much, Raisa. Um, Ravi, I was hoping that we could start with you because, of course, um, ground zero, the center of gravity, whatever you want to call it when it comes to the Adani group is, of course, India. Um, it's Gujarat, um, to some extent, of course, I think also um, Delhi, though, I think the whole country basically at this point as the <coughs> spread. Um, I was uh, hoping that uh, we could ask you to briefly um, tell us and remind us what's been happening with the Hindenburg allegate, um, sorry, the Hindenburg report and um, how Adani and also the Indian government have reacted and responded to them. So even before the Hindenburg report uh, research report published in 24th of January, there are a lot many journalists here in India kept pointing out many of these things. Uh, and if you look at, if you read the uh, Hindenburg reports and if you followed these stories by uh, the journalists did here, uh, most of the things you can see in the Hindenburg report, they have taken it further actually. So in a way, uh, Hindenburg report didn't say anything new, but they expanded what was already there. And uh, uh, being a short seller based in uh, USA, 
there, uh, you know, it, it, it got more traction in the financial market. That's what exactly happened. So after that, what happened was uh, Adani, Adani Group denied all these allegations. But uh, in there, if you go through their 413 page reply to them, it was very generic. It was not uh, specific to each and every allegation what Hindenburg Research, uh, you know, uh, raised. For example, if you uh, look at the FPIs, foreign portfolio investors uh, named by the Hindenburg, in, in the Hindenburg Research Report, Adani's reply just merely states that these are done as per the regulations. That's it, nothing else. In the case of uh, Dani's links with uh, various uh, offshore entities related to the promoter group, uh, the replay said that he, he has no holding in the common sense. Uh, he is not a director or a manager. He doesn't hold any uh, position as such in the group, right? Then uh, a few people filed a case in the Supreme Court. Uh, so, I mean, the, the Supreme Court ordered uh, SEBI to do an investigation into certain aspect. That is a regulatory aspect. Uh, the report probably will be published next month, uh, by middle of next month. Uh, submitted to the Supreme Court uh, by next month. But the real question is, uh, there are two aspects to it. Uh, regulatory, of course, the regulatory aspects are there. The second is a political and uh, economic aspect. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to uh, the investigations, if SEBI is doing an investigation, what we have to, uh, what we have to think a bit back, we have to go a bit back. In uh, July 2021, an MP from an opposition party, member of parliament from an opposition party, uh, Mahua Moitra, uh, she was an investment banker turned politician. She raised these questions in the Indian parliament. So the then Minister of State for Finance given a written reply, which said that uh, uh, SEBI is investigating into the allegations raised uh, against certain foreign portfolio investors parking money in only Adani Group companies. And uh, the Directorate of Revenue Intelligence, that's the intelligent wing of uh, Ministry of Finance in India, called DRI, is investigating allegations um, related to some aspect of Adani companies. The interesting thing is, what happened to those uh, investigations after one and a half year? Nobody knows. SEBI is still investigating. So that is that is the current scenario. Well, I think that um, best case scenario, Hindenburg took some years to research as well. Maybe SEBI will do something similar, but who knows? <laughs> I think. I think, yeah. Um, Ravi, and if I can ask you also to rewind a little bit further, because I know this is something that you've written on and looked at in the past. Um, there is, of course, a deeper connection between the, the ruling government in India right now and the Adani group going all the way back to Gujarat. Um, yes. I think, you know, um, I won't ask you to rehash the facts of, um, of that, but um, you've been watching Adani group for a long time. How would you describe um, how Adani's rise has, has taken place and the pace of growth recently, but also tracing the trajectory of the group from the early days in Gujarat, from basically the start of this millennium to the present day? 
if you look at uh, india's current prime minister mr narendra modi's political growth trajectory and adani group's business trajectory it's a uh, uh, it goes parallel it it goes equally parallel upward so this started from 2001 uh, the, the relationship uh, said to be started in the late 90s but uh, it got stronger uh, after 2002 gujarat riots it's very infamous right i think i mean almost i don't have to go to that everyone knows it so in a meeting uh, when uh, mr modi visited delhi to uh, who industrialists uh, and asking them to invest in gujarat uh, mr rahul bajaj a very well known industrialist in india respected uh, he passed away uh, last last year so uh, mr rahul bajaj asked uh, mr modi a question uh, actually mr rahul bajaj questioned modi saying that in such if if the uh, social scenario is like this that uh, uh, violence riots and all what kind of security uh, and confidence industrialist will have and uh, how can he guarantee that it will not take place again and uh, mr modi got upset and he walked away he uh, walked off the stage and uh, went back to gujarat then a section of this uh, industrialist from that body which is cii confederation of indian industries broke away from the main body uh, led by gujarati businessmen and they formed another body there in gujarat they conceived the idea of the vibrant gujarat summit the investment uh, summit of the gujarat government uh, it happens almost uh, you know uh, then then uh, mr adani mr gaudam adani was uh, uh, actively participated in that movement that's how they got closer from then onwards their relationship became stronger and stronger and it was not the first time that adani uh, allegations of uh, uh, i mean against adani group is coming up it happened in gujarat uh, so many occasions but it was never been investigated it was just dust inside the carpet dust under the carpet uh, then what happened was from 2012 uh, 2002 to 2014 uh, Ad- adani's growth trajectory was limited because mr narendra modi was just a chief minister of one state so in 2014 when mr modi became the prime minister the scenario changed because mr modi was the leader of india a, a big country so that is when uh, if you look closely that is when mr uh, adani's uh, you know reach started to widen across the country otherwise it was just in bits and pieces if you look at today adani holds or almost 14 ports in india seven airports and one is under construction okay uh, adani holds private railway, uh, railway rigs railway rigs grain silos coal mines mine development operations uh, is the largest uh, private uh, player in the power sector the largest player in the renewable power sector both uh, traditional and uh, renewable power sector you name them every everywhere it's it's adani look at uh, edible oil for example yes uh, you know the brand name it's there in sri lanka and bangladesh also fortune right 
So um, he's, he, his business has been expanded you know, in, in, uh, in manifold in the last uh, uh, eight, nine, nine years after Mr. Uh, Modi became the prime minister. So it's, it's even uh, in 2014, after winning the election, Mr. Modi came into Delhi to sort him as the prime minister in an Adani's, uh, in Adani's private aircraft. Mm -hmm. That course. itself speaks volumes, right? And there are photographs uh, that just widely published across the media and uh, recently the uh, now suspended or uh, yeah, now, now uh, suspended Congress MP Rahul Gandhi shown that uh, photograph in the parliament mm -hmm. while asking questions, what is Mr. Modi's connection or Mr. Adani's connection with Modi? So these questions were expensed from the parliamentary records. Nobody answered and nobody is bothering, uh, bothered to answer. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ravi. And um, another thing, of course, um, that's been in the news on the Adani group, um, the latest report, I think, was in Al Jazeera, um, where um, I think um, journalists uncovered documents that showed um, that there were special, there was special consideration given to the Adani group um, for a certain um, coal mine that was awarded to them. Um, I think it must be acknowledged that, again, there were other journalists, I think the caravan among them, who had um, looked at that and broken other documents, um, looking at that deal um, earlier on as well. The Adani group, of course, um, has said that all um, contracts and deals awarded to it have followed due procedure. Um, now, uh, my question is, um, of course, the previous government before Modi and the BJP took power in Delhi um, was hit pretty badly by a, a huge scandal um, when it came to the allocation of coal mining blocks to large corporations um, in India. For those of you not in the know, this was the, the infamous Colgate. Um, now, I think Caravan, among others, showed that um, while the Supreme Court uh, in India ruled against those deals and a lot of them were dissolved, Adani continued with um, the, coal, um, the coal blocks that were awarded to the corporation. So um, in what ways, in some ways, I think that, you know, there are parallels to be drawn between the relationship between large corporations and the government under the previous administration um, and perhaps what is happening now um, but what's your understanding? How much is Adani um, a reflection of problems that have been around for a while and are continuing? And how much is it really an exception in um, in its equation and its uh, with the Indian state and its recent growth? Uh, let's start with this uh, uh, the Al Jazeera story itself. Um, almost everyone uh, we understand what was this uh, Colgate. So the Supreme Court ordered, the Supreme Court order cancelled all those coal allocations. What happened was certain states like Rajasthan, uh, under the BJP government uh, previously, selected Adani Group as the mine development operator, MDO, uh, for these coal projects. When the allocation for these coal mines uh, were cancelled, uh, the MDO status of the Adani was not cancelled. It continued. So even if uh, the coal mines are, you know, uh, coal mines are tendered again, Adani will remain the mine development operator. Right? That is a tricky thing. It was just a play. 
and they played it very beautifully. It, it's good that journalists found out that. So this is not the first time uh, it's, it's done like this. Another example, what we can say, uh, which happened is in 2011-12, uh, uh, it was alleged, a group of activists alleged and filed a case uh, with NG, the National Green uh, Tribunal, that uh, the Mundra port and SCSET, especially economic zone, uh, the largest privately owned port in India and the second largest port. And it's a, it's a very huge area in uh, economic zone. It violates uh, the, the, the uh, environmental laws and cre creating ecological damage. And uh, the government formed a committee uh, to study about it. The, the expert committee submitted its report to NGT and, and the government which stated that Adani, of course, did a lot of violation and um, uh, it should be penalized. And so the, the penalty was, uh, I don't exactly remember the amount, but it was huge. Uh, it was a huge amount. After Modi came into power, uh, Adani submitted a reply. In 2016, Adani group submitted a reply that they did not violate any norms and everything is as per the rules. Government accepted, <laughs> accepted that reply and waived off this penalty. Okay, it's... Uh, and, and, the other another example again this is linked to bangladesh another example it's, it's, uh, these are in the plain side so brazen so i'm just pointing out only very few <clears throat> there's a, a power project in jharkhand indian state jharkhand uh, a place called godda so when uh, mr modi became the prime minister uh, as the prime minister of india when mr modi went to uh, bangladesh for the first time in 2015 june 2015 uh, both the governments decided to uh, take their economic cooperation further for the development of both these nations. And they signed um, a lot many agreements. Two MOUs were signed in that, that two private uh, companies from India will develop, invest in Bangladesh and develop uh, two power projects. One is a gas-fired one and another is a coal-fired coal one. So, uh, Anil Dhirubhai Ambani's uh, Reliance Group, Reliance Power, signed an MOU for a, a gas-fired thermal power station. And uh, Adani Power Limited, Adani Group's uh, power company, signed an MOU to develop a coal-fired power station. Three months down the line, in August, Adani Group's MOU mysteriously changed. And they signed a new MOU with the Bangladesh government. And they said that, uh, the MOU said that uh, Adani Group will build a, a ther coal-fired thermal power station at a suitable place in India and will export the power to Bangladesh. And they uh, found out the, play the location in Jharkhand, uh, a place called Godda. The interesting thing is, for this project, the coal will come from Aust Adani's Australian coal mines. It's almost 8,000 miles away, right? 8,000, miles away. So it will come by ship to a port in Orissa. And from there, it will come by rail, 592 kilometer by rail to the plant. Water will be drawn from Ganga. And the electricity will go to Bangladesh. This, this is a very unique project. Huh? I mean, nothing else. Why it is unique, I'm coming into that. 
So for this land acquisition, there was a lot of protest because it's uh, the area is uh, uh, one of the most backward areas in India, and a lot of tribals and poor farmers were there. The lands, their land, uh, agricultural lands, but uh, and ancestral lands were taken away from them forcefully. A lot of violence happened. A lot of lot many people were jailed. Uh, adequate compensation were not paid for a private player to put up this plant and government did this and and to uh, not to pay the you know, adequate compensation the then jharkhand government under bjp changed certain rules of the state and later uh, someone told that uh, uh, some bureaucrat said that i mean the pressure came from above from delhi so everyone knows nobody takes names in 2019, in 2007, Adani signed the power purchase agreement with them. In 2019, just before the announcement for, for announcement of the elections, the national election, general elections, the Modi government at the center changed its own laws and given a SCZ, special economic status, special economic zone status for Adani's Godda project. That is why it is unique. Mm -hmm. There is no standalone power project declared as an SEZ in India ever. So in SEZ, in special economic zones, the tax laws are different. Actually, it's a country within a country with different tax laws. So Adani doesn't have to pay any import duty for all the equipment, what they have imported. They didn't have to. They don't have to pay uh, any tax on importing coal. They don't have to pay even the, uh, the environmental cess for using coal and creating pollution. They don't have to pay income tax for the first five years. For the next five years, they have to pay only 50%. And 10 to 15 years, if they blow back um, some into the same business the, uh, from their profit, they don't have to pay income tax for that part. So in nutshell, the land was taken away from the farmers forcefully. The state government and the central government changed law to support Adani. Achha, one more thing. In Jharkhand, it was mandatory that if a power plant is set up and the uh, power is uh, exported outside the state. It was mandatory that the power company should supply 25% of the produced electricity to the state at a cheaper level. That has been changed for Adani. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, land is forcefully taken away from the farmers and tribals. Government changed multiple laws to um, fit in Adani. The central government gave an SEZ state to, uh, status to Adani's project. Adani will produce electricity, draw water from Ganga, export it to Bangladesh, and Adani will earn in billions. Yeah. Now, one more aspect to this. When we say that uh, Adani will uh, draw water from Ganga, as per the environmental report for this particular project, initially uh, submitted, 
it was said that uh, the water will be drawn from a, a smaller river uh, called uh, Chiru. Later, Adani changed this. Now, water is drawn from somewhere some 90 kilometers away through uh, huge pipelines from Ganga. So, a group of activists, or certain activists, uh, filed a petition in the uh, in the regional Kolkata regional bench of uh, National Green Tribunal. The tribunal dismissed the petition, citing two reasons. One, it is mandatory that within 30 days, uh, if anything happens like this, within 30 days, the petition should be filed. The activist was, uh, it was delayed. Second, the NGT questioned the locus standi of the petitioner, who is a Delhi resident. Think that you are staying in Delhi. Okay, how it is going to affect you? If water is drawn from Ganga, and if it is, the thing is that once uh, the the source of water is changed, then there should be another study how it is going to affect the ecology. It was not submitted. It was not done. This is second example. I can I can give you enough examples like this. Of course, of course, Ravi. I think that there are so many examples, and thank you, thank you for giving us. And I think that um, hearing about it in such detail, I think gives us a, a closer sense of how the, the levers and the gears of all of this turn in the Indian system, um, and also um, specifically in the case of Adani projects. Um, and you were already speaking about Bangladesh, and um, I'd like to maybe you know follow the power transmission lines across the border from Jharkhand um, across West Bengal and then into um, Bangladesh. Um, Zia, um, of course, um, you've also studied the deal in Bangladesh in some detail. Of course, we will um, ask you to elaborate on that. But to start us off, um, um, I know that um, right now in Bangladesh, there's a controversy over the pricing of the, um, the deal between um, the Bangladeshi company and the um, and Adani group on the Indian side. Um, many questions, various questions being raised. Ravi, I know you've also written on this. Um, but uh, Zia, we broke the story, Roman. Sorry, we broke the story. Oh, there we go. Thank you, Ravi. I'm sorry <laughs> for missing that part. Um, and uh, Zia, can I ask you to uh, just summarize what the controversy and the questions are first? And Ravi, if you want to throw in a, a little bit on this, um, on top of what Zia <laughs> said, please do. Yeah, let let Zia speak first, then I'll, I'll follow. Yeah, thank you. First, uh, thanks, Roman, for inviting me uh, to this webinar. Um, the This controversy regarding Adani's deal with Bangladesh Power Development Board has many layers and has uh, many phases. So right now, the phase that we are currently in is uh, that um, Adani has already started supplying the power. And the main concern for Bangladeshi people is the rate of this Adani power that Bangladesh is importing from India is actually three times more than other deals Bangladesh has with other companies in India. So Bangladesh actually buys uh, power from also Indian uh, state-owned power enterprise. I just don't uh, uh, recall the name NTPC, right now. NTPC, National Thermal Power Corporation. Yeah. So those are uh, between uh, Bangladesh taka six or seven taka, which would be Indian rupee around uh, five rupee or something like that. But based on the last calculation that we have seen, 
Adani's rate comes down to 18 taka, which would be something like 15 to uh, 16 rupee in India. So now yeah. the question Zia, comes up. Uh, Zia, the last, as per the last calculation, it comes around 23 taka. It was uh, 23 taka, but uh, anyway, so I, I will not get into details of it because there has been many phases of discussion. Now the post uh, coal price has come down, so there, there has been little correction to that. So uh, I'm now talking about the discussion that took place three to four weeks back. Okay, so now the question comes that what kind of deal Bangladesh government has done with Adani and why would this uh, cost three times more than the deals Bangladesh is doing with India? And also, um, we are also understanding that Bangladesh is currently going through a certain kind of financial crisis. Our current account deficit is uh, under stress. And uh, now we have to pay every year more than $1 billion to Adani, $1 billion. And if Bangladesh does not take away take any power from Adani, because uh, for example, we find the deal too expensive, so we, we you know, maintain the contract, but we only pay the capacity charge. The capacity charge is somewhere around 400 million. And on top of that, there are clauses in the deal that says that if Bangladesh does not take any power, it has to pay the minimum cost of 33 or 32% of uh, the input cost. So all these things together, there is a secrecy and there is not a, there is not a lot of transparency how much it will cost uh, to Bangladesh if it takes the full uh, power of that 1600 megawatt and how much if Bangladesh decide not to take the power and only pay the capacity charge, how much that will come up. But the rough figure that we have calculated because they have not published the deal openly and the calculation changes, uh, if we take uh, the full power is going to be somewhere around $1.2 billion. And if it does not take, uh, the cost will be somewhere around $600 million. Both of which figure will be a stress on Bangladesh's um, uh, reserve, number one. Number two is that this cost is it's like a 25, 25 year slavery treaty. Yeah, that's something Bangladeshi people, we always say we had a deal with Ganges and that's the 25 years of slavery treaty that has destroyed the water bodies uh, of Bangladesh. So we kind of do the same discussion that this is another 25 year slavery treaty that Bangladesh cannot get out of it and is going to continue to stress Bangladesh's um, uh, you know, externals. Absolutely, and um, thank you. I'll add to it, I'll add yeah, to please. it. Okay. Yeah, uh, Raman, we are very happy to say that uh, I and one of my colleague we got the access to the PPA, Power Purchase Agreement between the government of Bangladesh and Adani Group. We published it first. And you raised the question of whether the deal is legally void. Yes. Uh, and if yes. you could just briefly touch on that as well, please. Yes. Uh, unlike in India, uh, one good thing happened was the entire spectrum of uh, Bangladeshi media picked it up. In India, nobody touches these kind of things and never questions. And um, uh, unlike that, I'm, I'm happy that the Bangladesh media is very active at least in questioning the government. Uh, see, if you go through the uh, power purchase agreement very closely, and if you take the expert opinion on that, it's completely one-sided. I, uh, 
we actually fail to understand why did the Bangladesh government uh, signed such a PPA. Then, uh, I mean, one one aspect of it is that one the one former uh, chairman of uh, Bangladesh Power Development Board told Washington Post in uh, last November or December that uh, uh, Sheikh Hasina knows placing Adani is placing Modi. Or if uh, she pleases uh, Adani, Modi will be pleased. So that's maybe that's why this and that's what they said. Here, uh, the cost aspect already hasn't explained. The capacity charge, it's a mandatory charge, whether you know, uh, Bangladesh buy or not, uh, buy the power or not, they have to pay the capacity charge. So first of all, this is the reason. The first MOU changed. This is the reason Adani Group decided not to uh, build the power or the power plant in Bangladesh itself. And unlike the uh, unlike other power purchase agreements in Bangladesh and even in India, there's always a, a, a discount factor on the coal prices. If the coal prices goes uh, beyond a certain limit, a discount factor is <clears throat> involved. In this particular agreement, Bangladesh government did not mention that factor mm -hmm. at all. Understood. Um, thank you, Ravi. And I think that just to look at this from two different parts of the, the, the border and also to see two different governments, I think is extremely interesting. Zia, you've written in the past, I think, that um, that there is a the deal suggests that the Modi government um, thinks that the Sheikh Hasina government is beholden to it in particular ways. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, please? And then I'll, I'll bring things back, I think, to some of your own analysis of the deal. Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, thanks, Ravi, for your input. And um, actually, I would like to thank um, Ravi because Adani Watch, uh, we have followed uh, what Adani Watch has published and uh, those has contributed to our uh, discourse. Interestingly, what uh, the broader Indian um, you know, and also global uh, discourse about Adani's deal with Bangladesh hides the fact, not hides the fact, is not fully incognizant about the fact that the deal actually is a result of something that happened in 2014. And in 2014, Bangladesh took a divergence from democracy. And uh, in that election, uh, Indian Foreign Secretary Sujata Singh played a very critical role in um, uh, making sure the election is, uh, you know, projected in a way so that it brings legitimacy to arm league. It's a long story. I will not get into that. So that was the time actually Congress was in power. And Sheikh Hasina, with all the limitations she has, uh, she always have made sure that the parties or the entities that has given her maximum backing in the critical time, they were rewarded. So that reward from 2014 election of Sujata Singh's in intervention when she went to Bangladesh and you know, Ishad, who is the opposition uh, is, so, so she took him out of the CMH and lots of drama that happened. And then uh, she made sure that there was a credible oppo opposition force when the BNP boycotted and blah, blah, blah. So that reward actually got Modi's government. So Modi, when Modi visited in 2015, at that time, uh, two deals were signed. 
we still are not talking about reliance. They have done another massively, massively um, bad deal on Bangladesh for which we are going to suffer. And the reliance is coming in next few months. I'm expecting another seminar on reliance. Okay. So in that deal with uh, reliance and Modi, uh, sorry, Adani, it was uh, decided that uh, $5 billion, the, both of the companies will invest to develop Bangladesh power sector, which was actually uh, kind of like welcomed by all the uh, you know parties in Bangladesh because Bangladesh needs investment. But anything that is good is turned into such a way that, that eventually uh, we have to pay a long time. Uh, so that uh, agreement in 2015, uh, have to be uh, signed uh, in uh, was signed in 2017 and uh, and then in 2018 um, the agreement came into light first through institute of financial analysis and uh, research iiefa they wrote a report that adani got the power deal too risky too late and too expensive for bangladesh and then adani watch also uh, made some good contributions and so that's, and, and then in Bangladesh, there were not a lot of discussion until I would say this February, when it came to light that this Adani's deal will cost per unit 21 taka, which is like three times off, uh, you know, what Bangladesh is paying to other uh, companies in India. And then it becomes a big story. And then coincidentally, at that time, the Hindenburg report came out. So uh, this too didn't happen uh, by design, this to happen uh, by accident. And then uh, the Bangladesh issue got international prominence and Indian media picked up. But uh, it could have happened that in Bangladesh, we are making a lot of human cry and there's a lot of, lot of buzz in India because uh, nobody cares. Of course. And um, I think, um... They're saying that I think Adani disputes the figure, 16 taka, 23 taka. I've seen also um, different ways of calculating it. Is it 1.2 billion a year? Um, Adani, of course, disputes the figures that have been reported. Um, and also, I know that um, in Bangladesh, there are questions being raised about Bangladesh possibly seeking to renegotiate the terms of this deal, um, which is also something that Adani denies. Um, so, um, Zia, I did want to go back to the deal itself, because I know you've also done some analysis um, where you've also um, taken up, I think, a unique and, and very interesting um, angle to this, where you've said that, um, of course, you know, there are the comparisons, um, like for like comparisons between um, other deals for power cross-border that Bangladesh has signed. But you were saying that um, nobody has really looked at the alternative to coal power as a whole, not just Adani, but to look at green power, which India or Indian green power firms have been saying that they have surplus to sell. Um, but that doesn't seem to be on the, the, the table at all. And you were saying that that constitutes an even bigger disadvantage when you uh, to Bangladesh when you do that comparison. Could you walk us through that a little bit, please? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a very important and interesting aspect that I would say Bangladeshi media has also missed out. Um, it's not something that I came up with. Uh, I would say that a lot of discussion and the in-depth analysis that we are doing now that initially started with the report, Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis that they carried out in 2018. And Mr. Tim Buckley, who is from Australia, um, 
he showed in that very elaborate report that the time Bangladesh carried out the deal with Adani, at that time, the Indian um, Association of Alternative Energy or something, the president, I, I don't, I have not named uh, the association properly. They were asking to uh, lobby to sell their excess powers to Indian neighbors. And who is the Indian neighbor that has the highest amount of energy need? And who is the Indian neighbor that has, uh, you know, a good uh, connection with the Indian authorities so that you can uh, sell powers? So that would be Bangladesh. And Mr. Tim Buckley, he argued this that, that Bangladesh would have easily taken advantage of the falling alternative energy prices that's uh, now available in India. And that's why Bangladesh didn't need to carry out this contract, it, at least not for 25 years, because India is slowly becoming an energy surplus nation, especially when it comes to renewable energies. And um, that is something um, that's uh, he, another critical thing is that that power would have cost around 2.2 rupee and there would be no inflation because uh, this, you know, we do a lot of discussion being a journalist and uh, being an analyst and being an activist, but energy mix is a complicated thing. Sometimes you need to buy expensive powers to maintain the base load. So his point was, Bangladesh didn't really need to buy uh, power from Adani because we have base load capacity from our sitting, uh, you know, diesel powered and also our gas powered um, power stations. So his idea was this, that Bangladesh should have avoided getting into this very expensive deal. Instead of Bangladesh should have procured the uh, renewable energy deals, which Indian renewable energy um, owners, they were very keen. And just to add that, then I, I had an interview with him, uh, Mr. Tim Buckley uh, last month. Then I said that, why didn't uh, Bangladesh uh, do that? And he, um, he said that, well, the deal was done between Sheikh Hasina, Gautam Adani and uh, uh, Narendra Modi, Mr. Narendra Modi. So they were not given the chance to uh, even uh, offer their deals. Then I also asked that, was that in media, in Indian media? I know that it was not in Bangladesh media. He said that, yes, it was in Indian media. Uh, there is a person whose name I have uh, forgotten. He has already expired. He was the head of Indian um, Wind Energy Association of something. Uh, he was lobbying it for very hard, mm -hmm. but their lobby did not come down to where it should uh, reach. Understood. Roman, I'll add one more thing here. See, if we look at the installed power capacity of Bangladesh, Bangladesh had uh, excess installed capacity than what it, it is, uh, no, it's current uh, peak demand, right? It's, uh, but the problem with Bangladesh is, the Bangladesh plant load factor, the actual production is anywhere between 40 to 45% of the ex existing uh, no, installed capacity. If instead of buying power from India, if Bangladesh, uh, if Bangladesh government should have uh, you know, uh, decided to utilize its its own its uh, own installed capacity, the situation would have been different. 
Absolutely. And another big set of questions to be to be asked right. around that. So just to emphasize on what Ravi said is that um, Bangladesh even didn't need to do the deal. Mm -hmm. So what is that Bangladesh could have done this deal or that deal? Back in 2017, it was very clear the unutilized power of Bangladesh, unutilized capacity has reached 50% plus in 2017 when the deal was signed. So Bangladesh actually didn't need to sign that deal. Absolutely. Thank you, Zia. And I think we'll be coming back to that, I think, in, um, in more of our questions and our discussions as well. Um, but for now, I want to take us on a reverse journey along the power lines, uh, some, I would estimate, roughly a thousand kilometers back into Jharkhand. From Jharkhand, another thousand kilometers, as Ravi was pointing out, back to the Indian coast. From there, many thousands of kilometers over to Australia, where we have Rowana Raf. Um, and of course, the as Ravi was pointing out, Australian coal is also quite central to this. But that is, of course, not why we have asked Rowan to be here with us today. Um, Rowan, um, I want to start um, by also acknowledging um, the many Myanmar activists and, and I'm guessing journalists and others that you worked with. Of course, the situation in Myanmar is such that a lot of them cannot be out in open in, in public. Um, putting their names to the work that they've done and also speaking out about what's happening in the country. Um, but we are very grateful that we have you instead. Of course, you worked with a lot of um, activists and others in Myanmar to put out the information that you did. Um, I want to um, very quickly say to everyone else in, um, in the session that um, Adani's involvement in, um, in Myanmar is a port in Yangon, um, which is being um, constructed um, in partnership with a military-linked company. Um, the, uh, the, um, the group Justice in Myanmar, in, um, in partnership with Rowan, put out a report about this and about Adani's links both to the, the current um, military regime and to this specific project. Rowan, if you could tell us, um, please, um, in a bit more detail about the project and also what's happened since the, to the project, as far as you know, since the report was published. Yes, thank you so much, Roman. Um, it's a real pleasure to be on this panel. I should state at the outset that I myself am not an Adani observer, um, and I really respect people like Ravi, Zia, and everyone else in India and across the region for really um, taking on such a very powerful cooperation and holding it to account. Um, thank you also for paying respects to the activists in Myanmar. Our very brilliant partner organization, Justice for Myanmar, has really um, been so pivotal to exposing uh, Adani's links in Myanmar, and we were very fortunate to work with them. I should state at the outset also that ACIJ is a legal center. Uh, we work with community organizations, diaspora groups, community groups, um, and other partner organizations to um, provide um, accountability, expose um, uh, wrongdoing, and uh, work with these communities to find remedies for um, international crimes, which we would uh, define as um, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes. Um, and so we came to this really after um, the uh, uh, campaign against the Rohingya ethnic and religious community um, in Myanmar, the, the Rohingya, um, which in 2017 
as your audience might know, were exposed to a genocidal campaign from the Myanmar military. And so that set off, um, you know, uh, ongoing uh, uh, accountability um, processes in the UN. One of them was the uh, fact-finding mission, which was the first one that really popularized, I guess, um, to the human rights community, which I would consider myself to be a part of, about Adani's links in Myanmar. So that's where I first heard about um, what Adani was doing in Myanmar. Um, and I was interested, obviously, being an Australian and the, the unpopularity of Adani, the Adani group in Australia, because of its Carmichael project. Um, so um, the, the uh, what I've prepared, Roman, um, hopefully for the benefit of your audience, and I will try and do it as quickly as possible, because I know that previously we had these fantastic discussions with yourself and Ravi and, and Zia. So I'll just go through a, a, a bit of a chronology um, about this relationship um, with Adani Ports and Special Economic Zones and the Myanmar Economic Corporation um, and try and bring you up to speed about what's happened since the relationship and all of their announcements since then. And hopefully we can go into more discussions in the Q&A about um, other issues. Um, so in so in May 2019, um, Adani Ports and Special Economic Zones, um, which we'll call Adani Ports, entered into a BOT contract. That's a build, operate and transfer contract with the Myanmar Economic Corporation, the MEC for short, um, to build a commercial international port in Yangon. And in the process, um, it would lease land held by the MEC for 50 years. Now, MEC, as you've stated, is a military holding company. It's owned and controlled by the Myanmar military. Is as a part of the process in, in the establishment of this contract, Adani Ports committed to investing 290 million US dollars for the entire project. And the contract itself was entered into less than two years after the military's ethnic cleansing campaign against the Rohingya, which is considered to be really wildly considered to be a genocidal campaign. Um, and also less than a year after the UN fact-finding mission uh, warned foreign corporations from engaging with the Myanmar military's two uh, conglomerates, that's MEC and MEHL. Um, and uh, in, in August 2019, um, uh, 2018 rather, the UN fact-finding mission, which uh, was established by the United Nations Human Rights Council, um, listed Adani as one of the 58 foreign corporations um, that had entered into or maintained commercial ties with either of these two uh, companies. So this deal is obviously very bad for many reasons, but, but more because foreign investment in Myanmar um, facilitates endemic corruption and it allows the military to channel crucial funds that should be used for the public um, and um, to itself. And so the military, as we know, led a violent coup um, just over two years ago on 1 February 2021, um, toppling a democratically elected civilian government. And the coup, as you've stated, has resulted in mass repression across the entire country and ongoing atrocities, ongoing uh, war crimes and, and crimes against humanity. Um, put simply, as one United Nations fact-finding mission member, uh, the Australian um, Chris Sidoti said, uh, any deal with these companies puts hands directly into the military, and that's the bottom line. So we released our report um, on March 30 in 2021, and it published leaked documents that was obtained by the wonderful uh, folks at Justice for Myanmar, um, which revealed for the first time the amount that was paid by Adani Ports um, to the MEC. Um, 
to the ME, to the MEC. And so um, it was a total of $52 million of um, land lease fees and clearance fees. And one thing that we've always been interested about is the question, I think um, there was a, in addition to the $30 million of a land lease fee, there was a land clearance fee of, of $22 million. And so we don't know who the recipient of this is. We expect that it would be MEC, but it seems like a lot, as somebody that's not really, uh, doesn't really understand um, uh, the building and construction of ports, uh, I guess a very lay understanding, but $22 million for land clearance fees seems like a very exuberant amount. And so I think there should be questions raised about the, this amount in general, um, the potential about whether there's any kickbacks really, you know, um, within that, um, that fee itself. And so I think that was always something that was, I, I guess, uh, a question that we were never able to answer. Um, so if the journalists um, listening in, um, if they can chase that, that would be really um, uh, fascinating to know. Because, of course, um, Adani Ports has always stated that, uh, you know, uh, it's always uh, maintained due to uh, the, its contract with the MEC has always been maintained um, with due diligence. But it's never released these reports. Um, of course, uh, Adani Group is not known for its transparency. We've called on Adani Ports to release these reports, uh, these their due diligence uh, reports, which they say they've conducted, uh, but they've never released them. And I think also the United Nations fact-finding mission requested that they release it, but we've never heard about that. Um, so our report also interestingly published photos of Adani Ports' CEO, Karen Adani, exchanging gifts with the Commander-in-Chief um, of the Myanmar military, the Senior General Minong Line in a tour of uh, the Mondara port in India in July 2019. Um, it's important to note that at the time of his visit, the senior general was barred from visiting the United States um, because of the atrocities against the Rohingya minority. Um, and subsequently, obviously, there was further targeted sanctions and financial um, sanctions against the senior general. Um, it's important also to note that the Dani Group never responded to the United Nations fact-finding mission when it, um, you know, publicly listed them as one of those foreign corporations involved with the military uh, corporations. Um, in February 2021, so this was quite interesting, it was just before we released our report, um, Adani Ports responded to the Business and Human Rights Centre, that's an online portal that uh, researches business and human rights issues around the world, um, stating that we categorically deny having engaged with the military leadership while receiving the approval or thereafter. But of course, we published these report, these photos, which were, were already available online. I mean, um, Minongline had them on the military's website, on their social media, um, it only just took us finding them um, for us to release them. I mean, it was it was really laughable, and I think um, it, it's uh, it's insulting. I think that Adani thinks it can it can mislead people in such an it's such a such an apparent fashion. It's probably something that's happened in the past, and, and your guests might know about this. But for me, as somebody who came quite recently to looking into Adani, I just thought this was really really. Um, insulting to our intelligence that they would make such an outright denial when there was um, photographic and video evidence that clearly showed um, Adani CEO Karen Adani, um, you know, giving um, Minong Line gifts and touring the port, Mandara port with them. Um, 
Interestingly, also in February, so again, just before our report was released, um, there was an earnings conference call. Um, and this is about two, uh, a few months after the February uh, coup. There were questions about Adani Ports's um, contract in Myanmar. Um, and um, Karen Adani essentially stated that it was business as usual. The port was in full swing, he said, and that they expected the terminal to be commissioned by April 2021. Um, then there was a follow-up question to him about whether the contract was rock solid irrespective of the political situation there. Um, and Adani says, yes, that is there. So this exchange, I think, reflects that Adani Porter's overriding preoccupation was with the port build, not the cat catastrophic situation of the coup and, the, and that their business partner was now running the country. So all of these flowery, uh, you know, subsequent flowery statements that Adani Ports had about we respect human rights and all of this stuff, um, I think flies in the face of this very um, important um, conversation uh, that they did not care. They cared about the fact that the port was continuing to be built, remembering that it was a few months after the, the coup and the very devastating human rights situation that was facing Myanmar. Um, so after the release of our report, which, you know, as I've just detailed, leaked those documents um, showing the, the land lease fees that was paid and also those photos, which, again, I state was not something that we, you know, was... Um, was, uh, you know, broken by us in a way. We just put it all together and analysed it. Um, they issued a statement. And so the statement, I think, became very typical of what we are used to from Adani. Obfuscation, dishonesty, crafty and ingenuine language about their so-called respect for human rights and that this project is so-called, you know, is benefiting um, the people of Myanmar. They never commented on the land lease payments that we detailed in our report. Um, and the obfuscation was in the way that it tried to suggest that the port project was facilitated by this other agency, the Myanmar Investment Corporation uh, Commission. The commission only regulates investment, but it's the business deal itself that is a direct uh, business with MEC, which they didn't acknowledge at all in this statement um, following the release of our report. In fact, MEC, the word MEC, Myanmar Economic Corporation, suddenly disappeared from all of their statements um, subsequent to the release of the report. So again, failing to acknowledge this direct business um, when previously they had, you know, it was just following the release of the report. Um, and so in April 2021, um, what we had was uh, a few in human rights groups, environmental groups um, got together and put in a um, case toward, to the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, um, a case for review, they call it, and Adani Ports was, um, was uh, uh, taken off the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. So this was the kind of impact that we saw that was starting to happen following the release of the report. Now, in May 2021, um, came news, I think it was first published in Reuters, they were reporting on an investor document that Adani stated that it that if it was found to be in violation of US sanctions, it will exit Myanmar. It said, in a scenario wherein Myanmar is classified as a sanctioned country under the Office of Foreign a Assets Control in the US, um, if it opines that the project violates the current sanctions, Adani Ports plans to abandon the project and write down the investment. 
And so OFAC is the office within the US Treasury Department that administers the country's um, uh, economic and trade sanctions. And, you know, this isn't, here we go, the beginning of another kind of line of, of, of um, reasoning that uh, Adani Ports had uh, subsequent to the release of our report. And it became about the issue of sanctions. Um, and so it didn't need a determination. We, we would say what we said at the time, it didn't need a determination um, from the from the US OFAC that it was um that it was in violation of sanctions. Regardless of whether it were sanctions or not, it should have it should disengage responsibly and comply with their human rights obligations. Um, for example, in October 2020, um, global shipping giant Mask um, ended its use of the military-owned ports in, in Yangon and Myanmar because they recognised the real human rights risks and potential complicity um, by continuing to use those ports. So this global shipping company did uh, dis announce disengagement with the military ports in 2020. So before the coup, and but after the release of the UN fact-finding mission reports. Okay, so June 2021, what do we have? We have an, an annual investor summit. About Adani Ports disclosed um, that in actual fact, they had paid $90 million in land lease payments to MEC. That's the, I think the first time that we saw confirmation of a different sum. Um, and in um, the quarter one, sorry, this is Indian financial year is very different and it's always confusing me. In its quarter one financial year 2022, Adani Port stated that it believes that it is not in violation of any, of any sanctions guidelines issued by the US or OFAC and has therefore applied to OFAC for a general license to operate the port. So I think that indicated a real concern that there is a potential sanctions breach, um, which is something that we were saying in our report that you know um, it could very well be in breach of US, European, um, Canadian and subsequently um, uh, Australian sanctions if it continued to engage and build this port. Um, so in August 2021, what we did with Justice for Myanmar was write to the US Treasury, urging them to reject um, any request from Adani ports to, for this general license um, and um, to be exempt. Of course, they wanted to be exempt from US sanctions on MEC. Um, and in response, um, uh, we didn't receive a response is what I wanted to say, but um, what happened um, was in October 2021, um, Adani Port stated that it was planning to exit its investment in Myanmar by June 2022. So this has not happened. And I think the latest is that it's um, stated that it's failing to find a buyer. And what I want to say, what I want to say here is that um, it says that it's in the process of pulling out, but it's still in Myanmar right now developing the port is what we understand. And this is not a responsible exit. So again, more obfuscation, more um, just vagaries from Adani ports about what it's doing in Myanmar. Um, I should also mention that in March, 2022, Norway's sovereign wealth fund, the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world, um, also didn't believe that Adani was serious. They had, well, they had serious doubts about its announcement to withdraw from Myanmar. And um, in last month, actually, they divested from all um, from all of Adani Group companies. Uh, um, we, they never put out a statement why, but they just don't have any 
investments in Adani Group companies anymore. Um, it could also be as a result of the Hindenburg <coughs> uh, report. I'm not sure. Um, one thing I wanted to state uh, is there was a question, I think, about what is the Indian government's relationship with Adani and the Myanmar and the project in, in Myanmar. And so these are the things I just want to state quickly and then moving or move along. Um, an important point is that the infamous Minong line visit, which of course Adani tried to <laughs> deny exist, um, occurred in the context of actually an official state visit to India. Um, and until recently, the president of the India-Myanmar Chamber of Commerce was Sunil Seth, who is the chief executive of um, Adani subsidiary in Myanmar and a key person um, involved in the business dealings and commercial dealings um, there. And the Indian ambassador to Myanmar is the patron of this Chamber of Commerce and the Chamber of Commerce's office um, recently opened the Indian Centre in Myanmar. Um, which was inaugurated by India's Foreign Secretary in a December 2021 trip, um, which unfortunately also legitimised um, the, the junta. And finally, um, Adani Ports refers to the Look East policy of the Indian government in relation to this port investment. Um, so those are what I want to say. I guess I hopefully managed to get you through the chronology there, bit of jumping back and forth. Um, and also, I think, pinpoint the Indian government, which I just also might state, um, Justice for Myanmar recently put out a report about um, uh, the Indian government continuing to um, approve licences to sell um, uh, arms to, to the junta. And so that's a, a very problematic link, I think, that should also be explored. Um, and the journalists in the um, audience are welcome to contact myself or Justice for Myanmar about this really troubling um, um, link there as well. So I think I'll leave it there and hopefully if there's other questions about Myanmar, um, in, in I can answer them later in the Q&A. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rowan. And I think worth pointing out something that the report Rowan, says. I'll add uh, one more line to it. Uh, oh, in, this last, uh, in the last investor's call uh, of the Rani group for the Q3 results, uh, Karanna Dani told the uh, caller that uh, the group is APSEZ is Rani Ports and Economics on Special, um, Limited is going to monetize this Myanmar's property uh, in, this, uh, in the coming quarter. In the next three to six months, they will monetize. That means they're going to sell it. Yeah, though, um, Ravi, just to add, I think from what we saw in our research, the Economic Times, quoting an anonymous source, um, recent report, um, there are, um, so anonymous source saying that there are Adani workers at the port and that the first um, the first ship is has already arrived. So clearly this is still, according to the Economic Times at least, an active project and questions of whether they are actually planning to withdraw, how that withdrawal will take place, of course, remain. Um, I'll, just, I'll just quickly tease that we do have something coming out shortly with Justice for Myanmar, um, and hopefully that will be able to provide a, an update about what's going on there. Please, thank you so much, Rowan. And um, Rowan, one quick question before um, before we switch over to Rathindra. Um, one thing I found very interesting in the report is that um, it also mentions Adani Group's own human rights policy. And of course, as, as Ravi was pointing out, that you know there are questions about human rights being raised in India, in Myanmar, everywhere. Um, especially with a lawyer's eye, what do you make of it? It's, um, it's something that companies do to pretend, um, or I guess to, 
I'll, I'll backtrack. It's something that corporations often do to uh, check that they've done something that they're supposed to do. It's not very detailed. Um, I don't think that there's been any updates to it um, and uh, they clearly don't follow it. That's all I'll say. Understood. Thank you so much. Rathendra, um, I want to take us now again across the oceans, um, I guess from Myanmar or from anywhere else to get to Sri Lanka, we do have to go across oceans. Um, and maybe I can um, ask you to start by just describing the three Adani projects in Sri Lanka, because the, the other countries we've looked at, it's one project each with Adani so far. Sri Lanka has a slightly greater variety. If you could just uh, maybe help our audience by telling them what those are. No, so like Sri Lanka, actually like, you know, although there are like three different projects, mainly like, you know, sport development and renewable energy, right? And Adani actually came into Sri Lanka like right at the beginning of our economic crisis. So, so like, you know, like in 2019, we like Gotabe Rajapaksha. And uh, I mean, like we, we, we've been having issues, right? Economic, political, cultural. But what Gotabe did was he gave all our issues steroids. And within a year, like, you know, everything kind of collapsed, right? And we have been like, you know, demanding like, you know, various governments and, uh, uh, I mean, like you know, we have been demanding various international communities to like you know help us out, and actually it's only India who stepped in, and I mean like for obvious and many reasons that's a discussion for another day, and like you know, they stepped in, they gave us about four billion like dollars worth of financing, and 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 that was really important, and I think that kind of saved lives, and there was a lot of appreciation in Sri Lanka about what they did, then then what the Modi government did was like use that appreciation and that leverage to help Adani come in. So in a way, he kind of used Indian public finances to like, you know, facilitate his, facilitate his friend into Sri Lanka. So like, I mean, like, I would like to start with the whole renewable thing. So, I mean, like, renewable energy is really important to Sri Lanka, right? Because like, we currently spend a lot of money generating electricity through diesel and coal. I think we spend close to 1.5 billion 6 billion, 1.5, 1.6 billion rupees on coal and diesel each year. And given that our, our our current account and our balance of payments and our foreign reserves are really low, this, this is a really big number. And for decades, we, like, you know, various environmentalists, civil society organizations, academics have been saying, okay, the future for us should be renewables because they are cheaper, they are cleaner, and they are less susceptible to like, uh, global energy market fluctuations but like we have not we haven't done anything right in fact like we have done a lot to discourage local like you know, renewable energy producers to add to the national grid and actually electricity act like you know it it's not there to facilitate uh, renewables but what Adan like you know like Adani comes in like uh, in 2022 and it was announced that like you know uh, that's a that's a MOU signed between Adani and like you know Sri Lanka to develop two uh, uh, wind power plants in Punarin and uh, Mana, both in the northern part part of Sri Lanka, and so like things like so. And in a few months, we go and change our electricity act. So earlier, like you know, if you are going to build a, a power plant or a power project, you need to go through competitive bidding, but we go and like you know, we change that. No need for competitive bidding anymore. 
but what you have to realize that at this time sri lanka was going through like from february to june we were going through like big economic crisis poor queues power cuts gas shortages nothing was happening and like public attention was quite like dispersed like you know like there wasn't enough attention given to what adani was doing even when we were like you know like changing the electricity act like there was a there was discussions in parliament but really like you know they timed it so well that public attention was not really there right and like around the same time our former uh, head of the silon electricity board he goes before a parliament watch committee and he says uh, this like you know like sri lanka gave these power projects to adani because of the pressure exerted from the modi government now he says this and within the day gotabe rajapaksha and adani both rejected and the chairman resigned saying that he was really uh, he was emotional and he got carried away right but like the documents we have show that like you know like he actually believed that there was exertion and like you know and uh, and like another point is like you know throughout this at this time sri lankan like you know politicians are denying that like these are government to government projects they were denying that there was much pressure from the modi government they were trying to portray this as purely commercial thing and like you know adani comes and he says they want to help sri lanka we are good neighbors we have to help you guys out we are thinking about your best interests and the people's interests and things like that but and then and unlike let's say like you know i, th- I think what ravi and siah have done like we really don't have too much information about these agreements but like one thing we know is that we are going to pay uh, uh 7.55 cents per each electricity unit that we buy from adani and that's about twice the rate we would have paid if we had gone on competitive bidding and we have to pay in dollars right and like you know we have balance of payment issues we have we have like a foreign revenue crisis and we are going to pay adani in dollars right mm-hmm. and this is not going to work out well for us at all that's one the other thing is a port development thing i mean the port development thing is also controversial i mean like because like he comes in without any competition right no competition no due process like no transparency at all so again like you know in 2021 january uh, president gotabe rajapaksha announces that he's going to offer 49% stake of the colombo colombo no, terminal to adani right? like out of the blue actually like about a week after like jay shankar came to sri lanka he just announced and like earlier we had planned to like you know we had planned to go with the private partner but we were supposed to go through a competitive and open bidding we are going to find a partner through a proper process but like suddenly like you know all that goes out the door jay shankar comes we are in debt to india and suddenly we are going to give 49% to adani and like you know at that time like our economic crisis wasn't that bad so people had time to focus and like you know protest and take steps so there was a lot of pushback from the trade union from political parties csos environmentalists journalists and gotabe take a step back but like you know, he gave he gives the best container terminal like another like you know terminal we are going to build to adani and again like not without not no competitive bidding we just give it to him so like you know he has been able to come invest in our strategic sectors without any competition violating not even, uh, violating is a bad word like completely like you know uh, like the rules 
do not apply to him at all. The Asano process, he comes in, takes over. So that's what has been happening. And 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 to be honest, like you know, there has now I think like you know, we have a new government. Like not the new government, it's about eight months, ten months old now. And their whole plan is to like, you know, privatize state assets. And like, you know, and like it like, you know, everything like all the deals with Adani, with other companies are justified saying that state should not do business. And we are just going to like, you know, without any process, we are just going to dish out stuff to uh, like, you know, companies like Adani. Yeah. And I think... I, I'll add, I'll add uh, one more thing here to that port story. I have done a, a long story on this port stuff. Uh, we accessed the cabinet memorandum. There were two cabinet memorandums mm. uh, related to this port. We accessed both. Uh, one was uh, by Justin, the then minister of port, named uh, Justin uh, Fernando, submitted uh, to the Sri Lankan parliament, which clearly stated, it's as recommended by India. I mean, there, mm. there, Adani mm. will develop, Adani will develop this port as recommended by India. Okay, it's a government to government deal. In the second one, it stayed the same and they give a brief, uh, a detailed description about Adani group and its uh, uh, business activities in India. Uh, the second one uh, was in October uh, 2020. It was it was uh, signed by then Port Minister Rohita Abayagunavardhani. So in in both these things, they clearly state the Sri Lankan minister states as recommended by government of India. So now it raises another question: It's a government to government deal. Who is Adani for Modi government to recommend? this particular group as India's official representative mm. for a strategic project. Who is, what is Adani group? Is it India's official representative? Yeah. Ravi and I think um, Rathindra as well. Rathindra, thank you for giving us that whole rundown. And I think you've raised two cases that I also wanted to um, point out. Um, the fact that recently Ali Sabri came out and said that this is a government-to-government -government deal, government pointing to the same thing that you're talking about. Um, and of course, earlier, um, the, the reports, um, which then, I guess, were subsequently denied, um, or rather somebody, a minister coming out and saying, and then backtracking, um, that there had been pressure directly from the Modi government on Gotabaya Rajpaksha when, um, when the first deal was, um, was inked. Um, I spoke to I spoke to the then uh, I interviewed I, I I on on the record I interviewed the then uh, Sri Lankan uh, Port Authority Chairman uh, General Dayaratnayake, and he said that India officially recommended it's on on the record mm. he said that the uh, Indian government Modi government officially recommended the name of Adani Group as India's official re uh, representative to develop this port uh, port terminal. The yeah. the union the unions were so so strong that uh, in their protest yeah. they had to cancel the eastern container terminal that was mm -hmm. first proposed. Interestingly, eastern container terminal it was almost uh, uh, I mean partially operational. It was it, it's almost forty percent constructed, mm -hmm. and and the union said that just hand over to us if the government doesn't have money we will we will develop mm -hmm. it and operate. Mm -hmm. Government government have to give us some support. That's it. But without any tender, this has been given to the Adani group. And it was a consortium, not Adani group alone. It was a consortium. It was uh, uh, another uh, John Keels. John Keels. Yeah, um, it's a consortium of John Keels. And um, uh, the, uh, 
uh, SLPA, the Sri Lankan Port Authority, Port uh, will have a very, uh, no, that, that, uh, they will be the minority stakeholder. Yeah. Adani will be the major stakeholder, majority stakeholder. That didn't work. But uh, even though Rajabaksa uh, has been pushed back by the unions and uh, uh, opposition parties on that time, the another container terminal uh, just next to it, it's Western, Western container terminal, was handed over to Adani. I mean, now the difference is that the Eastern container terminal was almost 40% uh, constructed and partially operational. This one, they have to invest, a, uh, invest more money and to develop from the scratch. So after uh, the Sindenberg reports uh, facts, when uh, now banks are skeptical to fund him, how this is going to affect and how uh, the group is going to invest money into that and how the construction is going to uh, progress. Yes, the construction has not been started yet, if I'm correct. Mm. No. Mm. Yeah. I think uh, just something to point out as well. I mean, because, you know, we're talking about the, the statements from Sri Lankan ministers. Um, Ravi, as you're pointing out, it's also on record in the Sri Lankan parliament. Um, as part of the uh, Fadani's um, reaction to the Hindenburg report, of course, was saying that the Hindenburg report amounted to an attack on India. So if we can simplify Adani equals India and India equals Adani, of course, that's an interesting position for a, a private uh, corporation to take in um, to begin with. Um, I think also very interesting to point out that the Indian government did nothing to distance itself from that statement or from any of the, the statements coming out of Sri Lanka where these are being characterized as government to government deals um, I think the Indian government has also been puzzlingly silent when it is being dragged into territory that perhaps it would not naturally belong, let's say. <laughs> um, I want to say at this point also, I know there are a couple of questions already coming in on the chat um, to all of our, um, our audience. Please um, do put your comments in, uh, sorry, your, um, your questions in the chat. I'm going to be asking a few questions um, of our whole panel as well, but we'll be mixing all of your questions into um, the panel discussion. So please keep them coming. Um, to start with, I wanted to ask all of you, why did it take the Hindenburg report to, to bring so much attention to this? What is it about the media in your respective countries of interest um, and Adani's relationship, especially Ravi, I think, to the media in India um, that meant that until the, the Hindenburg revelations, people were not paying attention, even though, as Ravi pointed out at the start, a lot of the individual pieces of information that Hindenburg put together have been out there for a while. Zia, maybe I could ask you um, to talk a little bit um, about Bangladesh to begin with, in terms of how the media has handled um, uh, and approached Adani there. Um, my personal view would be a little uh, controversial. I would, say. I would say it was opportunistic for BPDB to take advantages of uh, Adani's predicament. Because what uh, Adani was uh, doing uh, to Bangladesh, it was pretty well known for a pretty long time. Mm. And uh, my view is this, that because Bangladesh is now in a financial mess, and uh, the reserve is under stress and government is trying to uh, reduce uh, its uh, expenses. And then when the calculation came up of uh, what kind of figures uh, we have to pay from next, next year, then 
the powers that control Bangladesh, who has uh, been very welcoming to Adani in doing this deal so that Adani gets all the favor, they suddenly realize that, oh my God, this is now uh, going to be a big pressure on us. So, and, and then um, Adani is a, uh, you know, corporation, it's not a state that you negotiate state to state and then uh, uh, Bangladesh government doesn't have a lot of lever on Adani. So they sent one letter uh, to Adani to, you know, change some of the um, clauses of the deal. And But both sides do denounce that. They don't say no, no, no such letter was sent. And then uh, it, it appears that Adani has made a little concession because the last figures that came out uh, the, in the per, uh, unit rate uh, for the uh, power plant that is uh, close to the other deals that Bangladesh has done with the local power plants. So that is something Adani tries to say that and our deal costs similar to what the deals that Bangladesh has done with the local power plants. Those power plants are not, none of these are, um, have come into operation, so we do not know how true is that. And, but critically, the important thing is that for Adani, we have to pay foreign exchange for the local power plants, we do not have to pay foreign exchange. So I, I may not have answered your question very clearly, but uh, what I'm saying is that uh, the report that uh, IEFA carried out in 2018 was uh, discussed in one or two medias, but it did not become viral. And mm -hmm. Hindenburg, uh, sorry, uh, even Adani Watch, Ravi, the watch that they did, we, the people who closely follow what's going on regarding uh, the major infrastructural issues of Bangladesh, we have seen that report much before. That also at that time didn't make a lot of uh, sound. But when the uh, deal, uh, when the letter from PDBD, PBDB that came out that per uh, unit coal would cost 400 euro, and then the cost calculation came up that is going to be 22 taka plus. And at that time, all the hell broke out. And at that time, coincidentally, as I said before, the Hindenburg report came out. So those things uh, kind of, uh, there was a coincidence, but for us, it, it was more about uh, the government realizing that the stress that deal will bring is not, it's not going to be uh, tenable. Thank you. I'm going to open it up to the other panelists as well in terms of how the media um, has um, reported in the past and the present um, on Adani's deals in your, your countries. I might start off because I think the context is is obviously different as it is for each of the of the different countries. But um, obviously, we're dealing with um, state media that's controlled. Um, but the independent media in Myanmar, both inside and outside, has been reporting on um, the links at least uh, since the release of the report by the United Nations Fact Finding Mission. Um, that's I think. Um, the first time that I've seen it in in independent Myanmar media outlets, um, and they've continued to. I mean, I, I myself, since the release of the report, um, gave interviews to to Myanmar now, which I think is the premier independent media organization. Um, I think that's now working out 
uh, you know, if the editor is um, um, not in the country, unfortunately, but they still have journalists on the ground um, very bravely trying to report um, the situation there. Um, so I can't stay, say about, I think, the state media, but I wouldn't imagine that it wouldn't have done it in any other way other than um, um, respecting the the deal. Um, of course, the photos came from um, me and my state media controlled media um, when the deal, when Minong Lang was visiting at the time. Um, but I, I think what I want to point out is just broadly about the support um, uh, for um, uh, against the deal and against foreign businesses generally engaging in um, Myanmar with the military conglomerates. Um, we had uh, over 100,000 people sign a petition against Adani Porter's deal with the MEC. There was um, a further 390 um, civil society groups, which is a huge number of groups across Myanmar that signed a letter that was addressed to the then Australian foreign minister calling on the foreign minister to put pressure on um, investors in, in uh, Adani Group companies, but also the Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Future Fund, which uh, had you know, a very tiny investment, but nonetheless a still um, investment in Adani ports, for example. Um, and uh, you know, the National Unity Government, which is the government in exile, they welcomed the, 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 you know, a statement from Adani um, at the time when it said that it was uh, um, exiting from Myanmar. Um, of course, this is there is a widespread recognition among um, the people in Myanmar and in the diaspora um, that, uh, you know, a mass boycott of military businesses generally. So um, I guess that's how I can answer. I might not be the best to answer in that regard. There might be others in, in that might add to it, um, but that's at least from Myanmar's. Thank you, Ron. I think that does give us a, a very good sense, actually, of the lay of the land that way. Um, Ravi, also, I mean, um, when it comes to Adani and the media, I mean, that's also been in the news. Of course, there's the, uh, the Adani takeover of NDTV. But even before that, I think, um, I think um, with Quint Media, I'm getting the name of the company wrong, but a small online uh, business news um, platform that Adani, I think, made its first, if I'm not mistaken, media investment in, um, which is kind of um, a foray into new territory. There are, of course, lots of Indian corporations that are invested heavily in the media here, but Adani was not one of them until recently. Um, Ravi, um, do you think that's significant um, in how Adani is being looked at in the media? Um, I know that there are lots of questions that have been raised in the past about reliances, um, heavy investments in um, in the media, do you think Adani is kind of borrowing from an Ambani playbook? Uh, if you look at uh, the last uh, six, seven years in India, uh, probably from 2015 onwards, 15, 16 onwards, uh, uh, the standalone uh, articles started to appear on Adani and people started to, a lot of uh, uh, journalists uh, started to investigate Adani's various business interests. For example, uh, the veteran journalist and my colleague, uh, senior colleague, Paranjoy Guha Thakurda, he published uh, uh, you know, a few articles, a series of articles in Economic and Political Weekly. And uh, uh, he, he had to, I mean, he ended up resigning from there because he had to, has been forced because of Adani's might. Then uh, there are a lot of articles like Aruna Chandrasekhar, uh, uh, M. Rajshekhar. They have uh, done very good pieces, very good investigations into Adani's various business dealings. 
mainstream media usually report if adani get a, a, a new business deal of uh, what is adani's profit and all those things so i think adani was looking for a platform um, you know uh, especially in the business media that uh, they can cover either cover up or replay on their own way for uh, the articles uh, like people like i uh, do because we used as journalists we always send questionnaires to adani and they never answer and that's a, uh, that's the case with everyone and how adani group treat media uh, and journalist uh, the best example is uh, yours truly is uh, i'm i'm one of those uh, uh, against whom adani filed a defamation suit right there are there are a lot many people paranjoy uh, adani filed six cases against paranjoy guhata kurta uh, there are i mean uh, there are other journalists from economic times and uh, cnbc also are facing some defamation suits by adani they filed a case against the wire funds uh, i think which uh, just withdrawn much later uh, a uh, news click uh, the website news website news click uh, has cases uh, and adani got a gag order against news click so news click since last two uh, two and a half years they cannot write anything on adani they cannot even say ada so that kind of thing uh, in my case it's very interesting uh, adani didn't file a defamation suit against me for uh, uh, on, on any of my articles uh, the story is very interesting a uh, couple of adani groups employees were traveling to gandhinagar and when they reached an interior village they opened the laptop and they saw a tweet of mine uh quoting the art, uh, quoting some articles uh i mean quoted from some articles so they felt this is defamatory to their uh, uh, you know uh, employer so they went and complained to the employer so the employer filed a defamation suit in that interior village i mean i don't know how this is the jurisdiction for that case and interestingly the uh, they compiled almost uh, uh, 25 26 tweets of mine most of the tweets are quoted or paraphrased from published articles some of them are my own um, some of them are published uh, by the guardian sydney morning herald uh, herald in colombo uh, some other web news website in colombo then uh, indian express the hindu so the the funny thing here is those articles are not defamatory when uh, a journalist quote and publish uh, this as a tweet or tweet it tweet this articles that become defamatory to the adani group so that's how adani treats uh, uh, the people and i i here uh, before i forget uh, i want to add uh, the human rights violations uh, sorry the uh, un sanction violations of the adani group i'm uh, i'm taking uh, uh, forward what uh, rowan said in 2017 at uh, end of 2017 december on the starting of 2018 january uh south korea seized a ship named koti for uh, indulging in illicit trade of petroleum products with north korea the ships uh, ship was the ship's na- uh, the name was koti k o t i the ship was owned by a company called koti corporation registered in panama this uh, the directors of this koti corporation 
is the son uh, sons of uh, chang chung link a business associate of uh, the adani group and uh, uh, who is said to be a close associate of uh, mr vinod adani mr godam adani's elder brother uh, when the koti corporations uh, uh, this was uh, the ship was chartered for uh, illicit trade the funding for that went from a company called first tech maritime in china this first tech maritime uh, is again owned by this uh, uh, changchung links children morris chang and norris chang and this is operated this company is operated from adan um, the address and the same premise of adani shanghai shipping company limited and this adani shanghai shipping company limited is a subsidiary of adani shipping china company limited so indirectly the ship was of adani group which indulged in illicit trade with north korea in violation of the un sanctions south korea scrapped this ship in 2020 normally in such cases what happens is when uh, ships are uh, uh, caught or seized for or or confiscated for uh, illicit trade the owners of the ships usually contest that claim and try to prove this was not an illicit trade in this particular case the owners of the ship and those who chartered it never contested it never ever contested it that allowed and it was not published and 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 uh, un sanctioned this shipping company after un sanction came in this this company it's, uh, it's stuck off from the panama registry Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody published that in India. We dug out the details. We published it in last month, in, in, on March. So, I mean, this is another violation of UN sanctions by this group. Understood. Thank you, Ravi. Um, Rathendra, I wanted to ask in terms of the Sri Lankan media, how has the the coverage been? Um, I know you were saying that um, at particular very key moments with the Argale going, um, attention was diverted elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe discounting that particular factor, um, how has the the local media been um, looking at these deals? I think like most of the media institutions have been like. quite negative about the dali and the entire adani deal right because like you know it was from the very beginning it was obvious that like you know this was not a very commercial this was not a commercial deal per se there was pressure from the indian government and that like you know like all these deals will have a negative impact on sri lanka's like you know sovereignty in a way right especially energy sovereignty and things like that so apart from let's say the government media institutions and like a few tv stations that are a bit like aligned with the rajapaksha so the government like you know the rest of the media has been like you know rather critical of the adani deals but then again like until the the report came out like we have been reporting like this is what has been happening he said this the other person said this the trade unions have been critical of this but we have like we didn't really like you know have like very in depth kind of reporting on this mm-hmm. right but but i think like things are going to change quite significantly because i think people are now traveling to like you know various uh, like you know various like you know uh, sites where adan is going to build these wind power plants and things like that so last week like you know a colleague of mine traveled to mena he wrote a story about like you know how the people are reacting to this i mean like the what 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 even like you know what the government has 
been trying to portray is that these things have been built in uh, areas without people. But like, you know, like our guy went and like, you know, we found that like, you know, there are about like about 70,000 people living there. And like, you know, these and like, you know, and these like power plants will have significant impacts on their livelihoods. And like it will like, you know, have a big impact on their on their quality of life because these power, these like wind turbines are going to be built near human settlements. And like, you know, if you have been near a wind turbine, you know, it's like continuous noise, right? Like imagine like, you know, 24 hours a day, like, you know, you are subject to that noise and they have to drill like, you know, very deep into the, into the, into the, into the soil. And like, you know, that might have an impact on uh, our, like, you know, groundwater. And like, you have to realize that these are places where there isn't much water and groundwater is really important. And, and like these things were never like, you know, covered before, but the report came out and like, you know, there's more attention. And like, you know, people now, journalists now actually have a bit more time to go and investigate, like, you know, like, you know, go to sites and investigate. So there has been increased scrutiny of like, you know, of like you know, what Adan is doing and what will the impact on humans be. And also like, I think like one of the good things is that like, you know, Adani really doesn't have too much control of media here, like unless, unlike India, I guess. So that is a good thing so far. Absolutely. Thank you, Rathindra. Um, I'm looking at the, the questions from the audience. There's a question here from Nazia Khan. Um, how has the Hindenburg report affected Adani's prospects internationally? Um, Nazia, if I may um, maybe narrow that question, but also extend it a little bit, I think internationally might be a bit too much for us to, um, to get into because we're looking specifically at the region. Um, and of course, um, our panelists have um, spoken about how the Hindenburg report brought a particular amount of scrutiny and a, a very uh, a reckoning for Adani's public image in each of these countries. So um, if I can extend the question maybe to say, um, what are the prospects for the Adani group going forward? I know, uh, you know, in each of these countries, um, is Adani looking to um, push new deals? Is there scope? Um, and, you know, um, I'm talking more about in terms of the, the public's appetite or um, readiness, um, and especially in the case of Sri Lanka, not just for Adani, but for these kinds of big um, corporate deals. Um, so opening that up to the floor for each of our uh, panelists to take up as they wish. So if, I mean, like, if I can start, I mean, like, before the whole like report came out, like there was a lot of speculation that Adani really wanted to come into our power and energy sector. There was like rumors that like, you know, he wanted to like, you know, buy a stake at the Ceylon Electricity Board and like was really pushing and like, you know, because we were going to uh, divide like, you know, the whole like electricity infrastructure into six parts and like, you know, there was, there was speculation that he was going to take over generation aspect of it, which is actually like, you know, quite a profitable, like, you know, uh, part of our energy production. And like, you know, and, and unfortunately, like, you know, like uh, when you even like, you know, even with these revelations, I think the government is very keen on like, you know, going ahead because I think like, you know, about a month or two ago, like our foreign minister gave an interview to the Hindu and like, you know, like this is after the report and this is after Adan just about, about $100 billion, right? Mm -hmm. Our foreign minister is saying that like, you know, we believe that like, you know, he still can do this and like, you know, he has the money, he has the technical capabilities and like the backing of the Indian government and like, you know, our government is like, you know, really ready to go ahead despite all these revelations. I, you know, I like, you know, like Ravi said, Adani doesn't like, you know, run into economic difficulties. There is no pushback from our government. Right. 
So that is that is the situation here. Understood. In India, it's um, it's a bit different. Um, uh, not only in India, and in, um, Adani Group's uh, total business prospects as uh, uh, you know in in, on, in in totality. Adani ventured into many projects where he uh, the group doesn't have any expertise at. For example, uh, the plant was about uh, they were about to start a plant, a coal gasification plant, uh, uh, and uh, to make PVC out of it in Mundra which was almost a um, $4.5 billion uh, worth plant. So now they had to put it on hold. Another was, uh, Adani was about to venture into aluminum, aluminum in Orissa with a plant and a mine. So they had to put that also on hold. Uh, in, 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 in the green hydrogen uh, arena, uh, Total Energies SA, that's a French company, French energy major, which is Adani's partner, committed 25% uh, investment in Adani's green hydrogen projects, which they put it on hold. They said that they signed uh, an MOU, but that is uh, not non-committal. So they put it on hold till uh, an uh, Adani's audited reports and if all these investigations, it happens, uh, everything comes up clean. Uh, Adani has, see, Adani Group has a lot of debt huge debt. Uh, it's not only from Indian banks and in uh, the, the form of bonds uh, and all. So in the next two years, uh, up to 2000, uh, end of 2024, starting of 2025, they need at least uh, two to three billion dollars only for debt servicing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so in this current scenario, that's why I pointed out that they didn't start the work of the container terminal in Sri Lanka. So maybe that's why the, uh, in the investors call, Karanadani said they are trying to monetize the uh, port in uh, Yangon and Myanmar. They're, they're trying to monetize it. That's what they said. So probably they're trying to sell it out. Uh, the other thing is that uh, Adani Group has a, uh, they need a lot of money right now because they, uh, they have in 2019, uh, through, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm openly saying it, the bid was rigged. The government of India rigged the bid uh, to privatize six airports and gave it to Adani. Okay, I mean, Adani didn't rig the bid. Government of India rigged it for Adani and gave those, because uh, uh, on that time, uh, the Department of, uh, sorry, the uh, uh, Wing of Finance Ministry, uh, uh, Wing of Finance Ministry and Niti Aayog severely opposed certain, uh, certain recommendations uh, like uh, uh, all the six airports they had said that the, all the six airports shouldn't give to one uh, business group or one uh, one party just like that few few other things and um, everything was you know just set aside and all uh, adani won out so when adani took over it was privatized because the private uh, person who's going to manage and operate this airport for 50 years so then it, uh, when, uh, when they floated an FPO in uh, the, uh, the uh, follow-on offer of Adani Enterprises Limited in uh, January, the day Hindenburg report came out, 24th January, the, the prospectus of that offer very clearly stated that they are going to invest for uh, nearly 4,500 crore rupees for the development of Lucknow Airport from uh, the money, whatever they are raising. 
So as of now, that is gone. So just like that, for most of their uh, work, which they already started, if they have to complete it, they need uh, so much money. And, and, and at the same time, with the current revenue, what they are generating, the profit, what they are making, they have to service their huge debt. So it's, it's, it's a tight situation. So just like earlier, they, uh, they will be reluctant to put their hands in the, every nuke and corner of the country on everything what they see. So that, uh, that kind of uh, scenario will not be happening. And uh, they already announced, the group already announced that uh, they are revising uh, their cap expense, the capital expenditure plans um, for the next couple of years. So after that, let's see, uh, maybe some more uh, things will come out. Let's see how it works. You have to wait and watch. Thank you, Ravi. Um, we are looking at the last five minutes of time. We have a hard stop at 7 p.m. India time. Um, so um, for everyone in the audience, if you've got questions still, um, please do um, put them in the chat and we'll try and quickly cover them. Um, meanwhile, I um, I did want to um, put another question. Maybe Zia, um, I can put this one to you. Um, you know, in all of these cases, of course, Adani's um, big um, big industry is infrastructure. And we're looking at a lot of countries that really are desperate for, um, for investment in infrastructure and also really need it in terms of um, being able to offer better lives economically to their citizens. Um, but the model, and I'm not just talking about that, <coughs> generally, I think a lot of the procedures, the opaque procedures that are being used to handle the deals for those kinds of contracts, we see it in Myanmar, as Rohan was pointing out as well, um, don't always yield the most transparent and maybe welcome results. Um, Zia, I know that you've written a book about um, Bangla development um, in Bangladesh and the narrative of Bangladesh's um, development, but also the particular forms that um, that development has taken. Do you see an alternative to the way that these things are done now so that in future, whether it's Adani or anyone else, we have a better chance of knowing how these deals are struck and understanding what is beneficial and not beneficial about them? Thanks, Ron. It's a question that requires another seminar to expand, but I will try to shorten my personal view. Is that it is now abundantly clear from the experience that we have seen in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka, and also where Bangladesh is heading to, these infrastructures are part of the problem because um, it's very evident in, in case of Pakistan. When, um, whether it's a uh, investment from outside or whether it's a country investing from uh, their own resources. These infrastructures need uh, a lot of um, input from the foreign lands. And then these infrastructures, it takes a heavy toll on the balance of payment. And then since um, the countries in the development stage of you know, Bangladesh, India and uh, Sri Lanka and others, they have a lot of non-transparent deals. So the cost is always overrun. And then again, these uh, infrastructures does not give the return on the investment so that it can pay for itself. Mm -hmm. So there is a very clear literature emerging in development economics and I'm a student of development economics. And there is a, a couple of uh, influential economists. Now their argument is that uh, that without much value addition, this infrastructure is actually bringing these current account deficits, this in investment on these infrastructures. And sadly, 
um, I also follow a lot of uh, discourse about the World Bank and IMF. They do not look at uh, this particular aspect of it. They think that this infrastructure, uh, when this uh, investment is done, is going to uh, take a country um, economy towards full employment. And then uh, when full employment is generated, then uh, there will be um, um, growth on the GDP. On the other hand, I have been particularly engaged in one particular uh, project in Bangladesh. And in that project, I have seen that by that time, around 1 billion has been invested, not more than 3,000 or 4,000 employment has been done because most of the equipments are coming from outside. Mm -hmm. So um, countries need to look at uh, this um, you know, need for large investments to legitimize governments that um, is not uh, you know, legitimate enough, and then funding it from the foreign resources, funding it from the big corporations, and then putting it in the jet trap, and then um, going into a scenario where it cannot uh, defend its uh, reserve anymore, then the currency is devalued, and then these infrastructures spread inflation across the whole population. So this model of development has to be cut in. The mm -hmm. alternative is that um, countries has to look at developing infrastructure from their own resources and then more value addition from their own resources. And also when investment is required, getting into more long-term deal with multilateral organizations. However, we are critical of them, World Bank and IMF, even AIB. When these are long-term deals with 15 years and 20 years plus deals with very low interest rate, those things can save uh, a country. So that is my view on this. Zia, uh, one sec. Bangladesh has to uh, pay to Adani in dollars. Yeah, exactly. That's what was my point yeah. as well. And same pattern in Sri Lanka as well, which I think yeah. in the current state for Sri Lanka and Bangladeshi economies, that's a very big concern. Um, a couple of other questions from the audience. Anwusib um, in Nepal is asking, should Nepal be careful of Adani investment? Um, we do not have a, an expert on Nepal on the on the panel today, but as a Nepali myself, um, I think that Nepal should absolutely be very careful. And I think that journalists back home should be looking at that deal. Um, I think so far it's just, I think, in conversation from what I understand. Um, but I think that that deal and every deal, um, as it should be under democratic government, should be subjected to a fair deal of scrutiny. Um, and Anusib, I think, um, apologies for not being able to go into that in more detail today because we don't know much about that deal because it's something that is still so new. But yes, I think Nepal should absolutely be careful. Um, a question from Setan. Um, Ravi, this is to you specifically. Um, Adani company shares are a little bit booming. Um, do share your views on that. Where is the money coming from? Is Rahul Gandhi right? I guess basically with the money that got kind of sucked out or rather evaporated um, with the um, the Hindenburg revelations. Um, very briefly, um, what's your sense of the, the current state of the Adani share price, I guess? I, I don't want to go into the political part of the Rahul Gandhi part of that question, but uh, in the case of uh, Adani companies, after GQG uh, uh, <coughs> partners uh, invested in the company, a kind of uh, investor confidence uh, has come back. But it's not as earlier. See, I mean, even now, in, in my personal opinion, even now, uh, some of the company's uh, shares are overpriced. So see, uh, the share market works on speculation. 
Mm-hmm. Right. If you if you look at this, that's how it it always been. It has always been. People invest in the company, looking at the prospects. That uh, how solid is the company? How it is? Um, how is it's the uh, the basics and its uh, fundamentals? Uh, if you invest today, and if you want to sell it tomorrow, how much you can earn? So here, in the case of Adani Group, there's uh, there is this strong belief in uh, the investors that as long as Modi government exists. Adani Group won't fail. So that's uh, that. As long as see, at the moment, uh, suppose even for one person chance, if BJP goes out of power in two thousand twenty-four, the uh, scene will not be the same. Mm-hmm. As of now, the reason is that uh, that the GQG partners invested and uh, uh, Adani uh, Group claimed that. Uh, they have uh, paid back certain uh, part of the debt where they pledged promoter group uh, promoters uh, equities, promoter group shares, uh, and they uh, cleared those part to give some confidence to the investors. And uh, Adani Adani Group trying to streamline their business uh, into their core uh, expertise areas like consolidating ports business more uh, strong, making it more stronger, and the power sector. So uh, that also is uh, helping them as of now. That's I think, but it's it's uh, it's not permanent. I think it's, it, this will, you know, I mean, when a, uh, a Hindenburg report comes in or any scams are alleged, uh, you you consider that as the starting point. Then what happens is uh, many people start to investigate that, and this is a long process. Mm-hmm. So uh, the entire process. I'll say it will take around two to two and a half years for the complete thing to come out. So what's going to happen uh, by then, we cannot predict now. Yeah. Because a lot of skeletons uh, are going to stumble out of the cupboard for sure. Thank you, Ravi. Um, we are out of time. Um, so I'm going to wrap things up. I want to um, say another massive thank you to all of our panelists, Rohan, Zia, Rathindra, Ravi, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your expertise and your knowledge. We could not have asked for a better um, set of people to do this. A quick thank you to all the Himal team behind the scenes for putting this together. Um, And the biggest thank you of the evening um, or morning or day, whatever time it is um, where you are. Um, To our audience, thank you to all of you for joining us. Um, Just to wrap things up, I wanted to just come back very briefly to something that Rowan was saying, where in Myanmar as well, there's been a lot of public scrutiny mobilized around the deal. And of course, uh, Rowan is in in Australia, where I think that um, the movement around the Carmichael deal um, really um, brought a lot of um, light, in many cases, uncomfortable light onto the deal, onto the way that Adani was working with the Australian government. I think that there's been uh, lasting effects from that, not just on how Adani feels um, they have to do business, but also on how Australian politics operates, period. Um, and maybe somewhere in there, there is an example for others um, of us as well. I mean, of course, that applies to um, big deals being done by the Adani group, but also applies to big deals being done um, in all our countries by um, a lot of big corporations. Maybe that's really the, the inspiration that we need to make sure that these deals are really working in the best interests of every one of us in the region. With that, with another round of thanks to everybody, everyone have a good day, good morning, good night. And Thank you. Thank you so much. See you at another you, South Asian conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Rowan.
Thank you to you all.